coming. She did get confirmation. I was looking at the four verses, and part of me thought, oh, it's kind of short, but um, I got to looking at the actual verses and all that was contained in the verses, and I realized there was a whole lot of truth and a whole lot of content, and I think we'll have maybe a challenge to get done on time, okay? Chapter 1 is our text tonight. Philippians 1, and we're going to read verse 27 to verse 30. Philippians 1, 27 through 30. And if you're able to stand for the reading, we'll do stand one more time here tonight. Philippians 1, 27, reading down to verse 30. I am going to make reference to verse 25 and 26 briefly, so I'll begin in verse 25. And having this confidence, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all, for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be as is proper for the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident sign of destruction, but to you of salvation and that of God. For to you it is given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict that you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Let's have prayer together. Brother Jeremiah, would you pray for us, please? Amen. I enjoyed playing a number of different sports in high school. One of the sports that I competed in was called, you ready for it? Ping pong. Now, some people say ping pong is not a sport. How many of you would say ping pong is not a sport? Any takers? All right. We have three takers on that. The rest of you think it is. I think it is when you work a sweat up. And uh, when I was playing, I definitely worked the sweat up, and I definitely became tired. One thing about ping pong is ping pong is not a team sport. I know some of you are going to say, oh, Pastor John, you can play doubles. But it's not a team sport, because whenever I played with someone else, they were always in the way. And whenever I went to swing, they were always in the way. It's not a team sport. Uh, Ping pong is meant to be played one against one. That's what I believe. There are other team sports, however. Soccer, basketball, and track, I got to play each of those in high school as well. Uh, Track was very limited. But uh, soccer and basketball was a team sport. And when you've participated in a team sport, you have, if you play very long, you've experienced two different types of situations. The one situation is when the team is clicking and everyone is present and everyone is energized and everyone is rested and on the same plan and everyone's working together and when you're when you're playing a team sport let's just pick basketball and you have those five guys out there 
And there is teamwork, there is unity, and the passing, and the shooting, and it is just smooth. I mean, there is something that you feel in your soul when your team is humming. But I've also been on teams when the fighting and bickering was there, and there was this lazy teammate over here, and there was an injured ankle over there, and the team was struggling, right? The team was not firing on all cylinders, and it's amazing how much you can't get done <laughs> when you're in a situation like this. And Paul here, as he talks to, the, talks to the Philippians, he's commended them, and he has a lot of good things to say to them in this book. But if there's one criticism, or if there's one concern of Paul about the Philippians, it does appear to be this area of unity and teamwork. And we don't know all the backstory and the details, but he really emphasizes the unity, and specifically, I'm going to reference this teamwork and unity around the topic of the gospel. And so I've entitled it Gospel Living, but I want us to know that this gospel living that we're going to look at tonight is not just how I live in the privacy of my home or how I live with my lost neighbor, but the, the passage is urging us to think about how we live together as Christians for the sake of the gospel. And there's a mixture of terms in the text. There's citizenship terms, there's military words, there's athlete words, there's a courtroom term. And so we have a lot of different figures of speech going on in these four verses. You may have not even picked out some of those as we read through and saw them as such, but let us look at these together. The first thing I want us to see is that gospel living brings joy. And this is a brief point from verse 25 and 26. Verse 25, Paul says, And having this confidence, that is, that he will stay on earth, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for the furtherance and joy of your faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. He says to them, look, you're going to have more joy of faith. You're going to have more rejoicing in Jesus by me coming to you. I'm going to come to you, and you'll have more joy. You're going to have more rejoicing. But then he adds this condition, and the condition is in verse 27. Only, it's almost as if he's saying, only if that your conduct be as is proper for the gospel of Christ. And Paul is telling them that when he comes to see them, they're going to have more joy, and he's going to have more joy because they're together, only if their conduct is fitting for the gospel. We're going to get to be talking about this gospel living and this gospel conduct that he talks about. But he says in verse 25 and 26 that you can have joy. You can have joy in gospel living. And gospel living brings joy. And when I say gospel living, I'm speaking of this idea that we live in a way that builds the gospel to others but also in a way that the gospel is encouraging our own heart and that it's strengthening us and it's changing the way that we live. You say, well, how does this come to be? Well, it comes to be day by day, moment by moment, where we let the word of God dwell in our heart richly, where the spirit of God works in us and as we walk with the Lord, it changes the way we live. And no matter how much you've grown in Christ, no matter how many years you've been saved, you have room to grow in your gospel conduct. Each of us have room to grow. Pastor John, I've been pastor of the church for almost 13, let's see here, let's get the number right, almost 12 years, in a, in a little bit, 12 years, 
I have room to grow in my gospel conduct. I certainly do. And sometimes certain days I see a lot of room for growth. In the passage, Paul says, there's going to be so much joy. I'm going to come to you and you're going to be happy and I'm going to be happy. But he says, only let your conduct be as is fitting. And it's, he's saying to them, I could come and show up and actually be not rejoicing. <laughs> I could be disturbed. I could be discouraged. And, and it wouldn't be happy for you either. Do you remember what he told the Corinthians? Paul told the Corinthians that he could come and, and he would not spare and it would be difficult and it would be painful for those rebellious and disobedient uh, Christians that were in the church. So we see that the gospel living brings joy. More specifically in verse 27, let's uh, continue forward here, and we see that gospel living involves conflict. It involves conflict. And he says here, only let your conduct be as is proper for the gospel of Christ. And um, We'll see this conflict in the first phrase, let your conduct be, and then also in the second phrase where he says, standing fast. Okay, both of these words kind of speak to this. First, let's look at this, let your conduct be. He says, there's, this Greek word is used one other time in the New Testament, and there Paul says, I have lived my life such and such. And it's the same word as here. And it's this idea of to behave or to live one's life or to, as it says here, let your conduct be in a certain way. The word actually has our word politics in it, which is kind of strange because we, in our American, we're like, I don't want to be anything like a politician. They're liars and they manipulate and yada, yada. Paul's not appealing to that, okay. But what he means is these Roman citizens in this very place of Philippi, this city was its own Roman colony, and so they were Roman citizens there, they had duties of Rome. They had privileges of Rome. And as citizens, they behaved a certain way. And Paul says, you need to let your behavior be, be such as is fitting of a citizen. The duties of a citizen. And I'm thankful that as a Christian, where is our citizenship? It is in heaven. It is in heaven. It is true that I'm an American citizen, but above, far above that, I am a citizen of heaven. And Paul says, let your conduct be as is proper for the gospel of Christ. He says, live as a citizen of heaven. Let your citizenship be known to all, if you will. And the conduct that we have should match our citizenship. I was thinking about this. What would you think of an Italian that didn't like Italy? What would you think of a Brazilian that said, oh, I can't stand Brazil. I hate Brazil. You say, well, that's that's backwards, right? It's almost like in a family context. It's like a, a child that doesn't um, love and honor their parents. You say, that's, that's backwards. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And here Paul says, you need to live your life in such a way as to line up with your citizenship in heaven. And you know what happens? When I live in a certain way where my citizenship is lined up as it is in heaven, it begins to create conflict with people around me whose citizenship is not in heaven. Because citizens of heaven walk a certain way, and they live a certain way, and they're spreading a message, and they have a purpose and a focus and a goal, and those around who do not have that, they are going a different direction. They have a different uh, drumbeat to follow. They have a different um, focus in life, and it does create conflict when you are going a different direction. He says, only let your conduct be as is proper 
for the gospel of Christ. See, there's a message of Jesus. And the Bible says that the name of Christ is put upon us. His name is on us. And as we live our life, we are to live in a way that makes his name great, that makes his message known. So for instance, the message that Jesus loves sinners is really hard to share when you don't love sinners. The message of sacrifice, that Jesus sacrificed himself for us, is very hard to communicate to someone when you are unwilling to do the least bit for them, right? When you will not sacrifice or show commitment to others. The sacrifice of Jesus doesn't look good or it doesn't appeal or fit in with that lifestyle. We could add examples to this, but Paul says only this one thing, let your conduct be as is fitting. Let it be as is proper for the gospel of Christ. This is someone who's organized their life around this purpose. Let's think of a soldier who's fighting for a certain nation. Let's take, um, we'll use our own nation, all right, an American soldier. When he goes forth to battle, he is focused on the cause of advancing America's interest in that battle, right? Um, Soldiers out at battle do not generally bring novels with them, right? Uh, Soldiers out at battle generally don't bring Game Boys with them, right? They are out there with a focus, with a purpose, and they've arranged their whole schedule, their whole training, their diet, all of these things around this core purpose of advancing the cause in this spot, in this place, for this country, right? That's the soldier mindset. And the citizen mindset, the citizen mindset says, I will love my neighbor and I will pay my taxes and I will vote and I will, um, you know, stop at the stop signs, right? Because I want to be a good citizen and build a good community right here where I live. And the Christian who loves Jesus and loves the Lord and loves the gospel will say, I am going to direct my life in a certain way to advance the gospel. I will be responsible. I will read my Bible. I will come to church. I will serve and share Christ with others. And I will pray for the lost. And what are these things? They are simply arranging your conduct in a way that is proper for the gospel of Christ. Then he goes on to say, after that, he says, whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Now this little, it's kind of a parenthesis, honestly. He's saying that their gospel needs to be, or their conduct needs to fit the gospel, and it needs to be true of them whether he comes and sees them or not. (laughs) Because he just got done saying, now I'm going to come, if I can come, I'm going to come, and I'll rejoice with you, and you'll rejoice, and there'll be this rejoicing if your conduct is fitting the gospel. But then he says, I'm going to hear about this either way. I'm going to come and find it out, or I'm going to be absent, and I'm going to find it out. (laughs) Because you know what? The truth gets around sooner or later, you know? If we live for Jesus... That word goes around. And if we live for ourselves and we live in sin, that word will get around. And um, Paul didn't even have social media in those days. And words still got around, okay? It's even more so true in our day and time. So uh, he says, I'm going to hear that you stand fast. What I want to hear, he says, that you stand fast in one spirit. Now this phrase, stand fast, is a military term. This is that military term of standing in the same spot. And this brings up that teamwork picture. I think back when we were doing the series 
How many of you remember this series? I love asking these questions. Ephesians 6. Do you remember when we talked about the shield of faith? Anybody remember talking about the shield? Okay. Do you remember the little tidbit in there about the shield, about the way the soldiers use their shields together? All right. We do have a few, a few people remember. Well, for those that don't, they would link their shields together. And remember these, these massive columns would move forward in a line and these soldiers would march in lockstep. And when the time for battle came, sometimes they would have the real tall, long shields that would be on the very front of this and they would link them together, link, link, link. And there would this, be this long line of armor. Behind them would be men with smaller shields, like more of the circular or the smaller variety. And they would do over. They would put the shield up and over. And they would have this whole sheet and column of metal all protecting them, standing together. And sometimes what the enemy would do is they would try to shoot arrows over and they would do different things. But one of the tactics of the enemy was to drive a battering ram or to take a bunch of men and run straight into those shields. What do you think those men had to do? They had to stand firm. They had to hold the line. And one of the tactics of the enemy was to knock that line over. And if they could get that, that, uh, a section to fall, sometimes that whole line could fall over. And when the Bible here says, Paul wants to hear of this Philippian church that they are standing firm, that they are standing together for the faith of the gospel. He says, I'm going to hear one way or another, whether I'm with you, whether I'm absent, I'm going to hear. And you know what I want to hear? I want to hear that you are standing together, that you are lined up together, that you're not yielding an inch, that you're not falling over, but you are standing fast in one spirit. This is a great uh, concept, that as a church, we are linked together for God's purposes. And we need to stand together in one spirit for the faith of the gospel. Elsewhere, the Bible really extols this unity. Um, in Ephesians 4, verse 3, Paul wrote them and he said, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And when it says here to stand in one spirit, that you stand fast in one spirit, there's a lot of ink spilled about, does this mean the Holy Spirit or does it mean their attitude? And... The honest truth is that they both are true, right? We need to stand together in the Holy Spirit and we need to stand together in one attitude. And as we have one attitude, the Holy Spirit is pleased. And as we're one in the Spirit, we'll have the same attitude. So they, they really all go together. But the fact is we have the Holy Spirit in us who is leading us and helping us. And as we stand fast together, that, that word together, it comes from a little preposition on the verb that just means with to be with. And this is that idea of standing together in one spirit. Paul is looking at this Philippian church. He's writing to them out of love, and he knows that there have been some divisions. In fact, in just you know, a few chapters, which will be a few months, turn over to Philippians 4, verse 2. Philippians 4, verse 2. He says, I beseech Iodia and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Notice how we talked about having the same attitude and having the same Holy Spirit. Do you remember that? I beseech Iodia and I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul specifically identified two people in the church in Philippi that were divided, that were not of the same mind. And he, just, he didn't even pick sides. He just said, you both need to get together in the Lord. 
You need to have the same mind. And I, I, I 100% believe that any conflict you have with another believer can be resolved if you both go to the Lord. If you will go to the Lord and they will go to the Lord, there can be unity. And ultimately, each person needs to seek to be one with the Lord and doing what God wants them to do. And Paul is urging this Philippian church, he says, I want you, I want you to stand together. I want you to live as citizens of heaven because there's a gospel that is at stake here. There is gospel influence at stake. There is gospel uh, uh, spreading that's at stake and it needs to happen together. And sometimes as church members and as individuals, we can get lost in this idea that about the individuality of church. You know, church is, um, first of all, the church is not a what? Church is not a building. Thank you. The church is not a building. Um, we could add two more stories to this building and the church wouldn't be any bigger, would it? Because the church is people. Now the church building would be bigger, okay? Um, the church is people. And so as a church, when I come to the church building and I interact with people, God's calling us to serve together, to have one mind, to fight together for the gospel. And that takes place in a variety of ways, doesn't it? We give in the offering. We pray for God to work in hearts. We sing the gospel song. Um, the gospel is preached from the podium. But isn't there, isn't there also this thing we have on Sundays where we have lunch together? Do we have that lunch? Yeah. And during that time, that's an opportunity to share the gospel with guests who sometimes will stay with us. We've had that happen. It's also an opportunity to, to be of one mind as we sit and chat with others. We hear their needs and their burdens. And, and that's an opportunity for us to stand together and to be connected one with another. And the, the call of Paul is he's like, you all got to stand together. You got to be firm for the cause of the gospel. And you need to live your life in a way that the gospel goes forward. He says it's really important and he, he kind of makes it his only condition that he'll meet them with joy and that they will rejoice when he comes is only let your conduct be as is proper for the gospel of Christ that whether I come and see you or else be absent I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now I want to take just a moment and we won't look at the full verse, but I want to contrast something. Verse 28 says, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries. Okay. He says that they're striving together for the gospel. And then he says, uh, he makes mention of their adversaries. Right. And this is what I want us to see from the passage is that there is a cause to be for. And we have adversaries that are against. There's something to be for and there's some some things, some people, some situations that are against us. And Paul here tells them, I want you to be working together for the gospel, for something. We as a church are working for the gospel, working for the message of God going forward. And he says, I want you to work together for that message. The word of God has warnings. The word of God has dangers. The word of God talks about adversaries right here. And so as a preacher of the gospel, I preach the truth of the word of God. And sometimes that involves warning and rebuke and correction. And sometimes we'll say, you know, this is a sinful thing. Stay away from it, etc. But if you boil it all down to what is the church doing, 
we are promoting Jesus. We're telling people the good news of Jesus. And that involves sin, absolutely, and, and how he came to save us from our sin. Praise the Lord. But do you notice how he says, I want you striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're for something here. We're for the gospel message going forward. And so the, the teamwork that we have together should not just be so we all feel good, you know, so we all have fun, right? Fun is, fun is nice, you know. We do fun things sometimes, and that's okay. But the whole purpose and cause and mission here is not helping everyone feel good. The mission is for the gospel, for the cause of Christ to go forward. And, um, and certainly how we go about that is very important. And yes, we want to treat everyone kindly and nicely. But you know, there are some churches that are really just glorified country clubs where everyone just kind of walks on eggshells with everyone so that nobody gets their feelings hurt and everyone's happy. Well, I don't want people to get their feelings hurt. I don't want people to be unhappy. That's certainly not my goal at all. But if that becomes the only goal or the main goal, what are we, what are we doing in the first place here, right? Paul says, I want to hear that you're striving for the gospel and that as you work together, your teamwork has a purpose and it has a, a mission and that it's accomplishing the whole purpose for which you are there. And then he talks about in nothing terrified by your adversary. And I'm trying to decide if I should finish. I don't know who the adversaries are. We don't know. But we also see here that gospel living removes fear. And he tells them, don't be scared of your adversaries. Live for the gospel and don't be scared. And this verse really, uh, it really struck me and it really hit me. Let me just quickly say that the adversaries have to be, in my mind, lost people. Because he says they're fighting for the gospel and they're not to be afraid of their adversaries. And he goes on to say in verse 29 or 28 that they have a sign of destruction which means they're showing themselves to be unsaved, okay? So these adversaries are lost people who are opposing the work of God, opposing the work of the church. And pagan political threats, you know, Paul was in prison in Philippi, wasn't he? Do you remember how he sat in the jail at night and he cried and he said, dear God, I don't know why I'm here, and he was really, really scared. Do you remember that part? Me neither. What did he do? He prayed and he sang praises to God. And at midnight, the, the jailer comes in and says, well, first he says, I'm going to kill myself. And Paul says, we're all here, right? What I'm pointing out is that because Paul was not fearful, he was a testimony to the jailer. And the Bible here says, don't be scared of your adversaries. In nothing terrified by your adversaries. You know, it is pretty easy to get locked in by our fears, isn't it? Fear of death. Fear of looking stupid, fear of poverty, fear of health problems, fear of this, that, this, that. And Paul says, I want you to have a unity for the gospel and that you're not scared of your adversaries. Do you know that there, this, this, <laughs> I didn't read a bunch of stories, but I had some go through my head as I was studying. Stories I've read about others. The boldness and the courage and the people that stared down the people that are about to butcher them with the joy and love of Jesus. Reading some of these stories really challenges me. It really challenges me because there have been Christians down through the centuries who have been imprisoned for years. I was thinking of John Bunyan. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison. And for years he was in prison. He's John Bunyan. Let's see here. 
uh, I'm going to get my stories mixed up here, but, uh, but he wrote a number of books, and God used that time greatly to minister to how many people? My point is that he didn't let the fears of being locked up stop him from doing what God told him to do. And sometimes in our own Christian experience, we let fears call the shots. I'm scared to speak. I'm scared to do. I'm scared to give. And so I won't. And we think, we think that we're making things better for ourselves. But what Paul would say is, no, 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 don't, don't let your fears call the shots because what happens is the gospel advance gets shut down by fear. When God's people stop giving, when God's people uh, start saying, um, I can't, when God's people let the enemy call the shots, right, then the spiritual battle pulls back. And he says, don't be scared of your adversaries in nothing terrified by your adversaries. He wanted them to be fearless. And he goes on to say that this fearlessness is a sign of the destruction of these wicked ones and of the salvation of these believers. And he, he, so he calls it, which is to them, that is the adversary, and adversaries, an evident side sign of destruction, but to you of salvation. And then he says in that of God. I believe he simply means that this sign is from God. So when you have a wicked enemy... And let me give a real concrete example. I've seen this photo, uh, it went around real commonly for a while, of the Muslim men by the beach and uh, their captors in orange and they all had swords holding them over their heads. How many of you have seen that photo? I've seen that photo. And there was a number of Christians that were captured by these jihadist Islamists and they took them out by the beach and supposedly they, they executed them there. I think it was about 12 or 15 men. And they're all you know on their knees with hoods over their face. And here's all these Islamists with their swords. And that's a situation where we look at those men and we think, what courage, that they would you know, not deny their faith and they wouldn't convert and they would give their life. They would give their life in order to, to be faithful to God. I've never had someone hold a sword over my neck. I've never been told to convert or die. But I have been told to let my life shine the gospel to give my life for Jesus' sake. And he tells him here, don't be scared of your enemies. And one of, the, one of the really strong examples of this is this context right here. Paul was chained to what? Roman soldiers. Was he scared of his adversaries? Absolutely not. Now, it sounds like maybe there was a period he was discouraged or something, but he began to share the gospel with them, right? And God began to save them. And you know some of the most powerful gospel moments are when God's people are fearless. And they share Christ, they do right, they shine the light of the gospel in moments where they could have been quiet or have not lived according to the gospel. Very quickly, verse 29, For to you it is given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake having the same conflict that you saw in me and now here to be in me. This final uh, point here is that gospel living involves suffering. Paul urges them that they too will suffer. And he says, to you, it is given on behalf of Christ to suffer. Uh, Mike Tyson is famous for the little quip, 
everyone has a great plan until they get punched in the face. And it has that idea of how physical suffering and pain can kind of overpower everything else and can kind of take you by surprise. And not only here, but in Peter and in numerous other places, Jesus spoke very directly of it. He prepared his disciples for suffering. And he said, you will suffer. Yea, Paul told Timothy, yea, all who live, in God, who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. And here he tells them, it is given to you. Who, who's giving it? Who's doing the giving? Say it louder. Thank you, Matthew. God is doing the giving. It is given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We are so thankful that God has given us the opportunity to believe on his name. And we'll stand and we'll testify. I was born again. Thank the Lord. He was merciful to me. He gave me an opportunity to be saved. I was saved. The Lord gave me the opportunity to be saved. But there's something else the Lord gives. And that is the opportunity to suffer for his name. And here Paul tells them, you can suffer, and suffering is given to you by God. Sometimes we think it comes from who? Satan. Even Paul said the thorn, the thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan, but in the same text he says it is from God, to do a work of God in his heart. It is given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. And then he says having the same conflict. This word conflict is struggle or fight or race. It's where we get our English word agony, and it's restating the concept of suffering. In other words, the suffering that they saw in him and that they heard in him was also a suffering that would come to them. What if God decided the gospel could go forward best through you suffering? It could be a very personal thing, cancer. What if God's gospel could go forward best if you suffered through poverty? What if God's gospel could go forward best if you suffered through some personal hurt whereby people would turn to you for counsel and help? What if God allowed the gospel to go forward through suffering loss, maybe a, a miscarriage or the loss of a family member? What if God saw fit to spread the gospel through your suffering? The Bible says that it's given to us to suffer. And one of the key points of a, a false gospel is a, a gospel that promises you everything gets better and perfect if you turn to Jesus. That is a false gospel. Our eternity is settled in heaven. But in this life, the Bible says it's given to us to believe on his name and it's also given us to suffer. And Paul wrote this in chains. And he says, the same conflict that you've seen in me and you've heard about in me, it's given to you. It's given to you. So, I don't know how the Lord would use the message, but I hope it will be with this outcome. That we stand together for the faith of the gospel. That we don't let our lives be dominated by fear. And specifically, the fear of suffering. And that we allow God to advance his gospel in any way possible through us. I believe when Paul was on the boat, or maybe when he was back in Caesarea, all the events leading up to this moment in Rome, 
He spent two years locked up in Caesarea. He spent months and months on this horrible boat ride. He finally gets to Rome. And I wonder if he thought, had this question in his mind. I wonder if it's worth it. I wonder if God's doing anything. I wonder if I'm just coming here to die. And then this soldier gets saved. And then this soldier gets saved. And then he hears that they're talking about it in, in Caesar's household. And, and then, oh man, the story of, of Onesimus and how he comes to meet him there. He gets saved and he sends him out to his master. And, and little by little, he can see more and more that God is doing. God is putting the pieces together. And sometimes in our life, we think we don't know what God is up to. God is always putting the pieces together, somehow, some way, for his glory. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the truths that we found in these verses. I pray that we will be a team here at Every Nation, a team for the gospel. I ask you, O oh God, that we will not live in fear, that we will not avoid the God-ordained suffering that you lay out for us. We don't want to suffer as an evildoer. We don't want to suffer in chastening. But Lord, when you call us to suffer for the gospel and for your name, may we not run, but may we embrace it with joy. Give grace, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.